It's crucially important that you try and assimilate with the locals right down to getting pissed with them. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast all about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we are covering a Merchant Navy seaman by the name of Arthur Harry Bird, who was a third mate in the Merchant Navy on the merchant vessel Australind, and he came from High Street in Uppingham. Which is in Rutland, I think. I believe so. Now, unfortunately, we don't have any further dates because in this particular report, it doesn't recall if he had a pre-war career or even how old he was. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if the Merchant Navy maybe has a different way of looking at this. But we very rarely come across the escapes of naval officers because obviously their theatre of operations didn't particularly lend itself to many people becoming prisoners. And as far as we were aware... I'm going out on a limb here to say this, but we believe that Arthur Bird, in this case, was the only Merchant Navy officer to actually successfully escape and reach home during the Second World War. Now, what interested me was that he was actually captured off the Galapagos Islands on the 14th of August, 1941. I didn't quite wonder what the merchant vessels were doing down there at, mm. at that particular time. And it was sunk by a cruiser called the Comet. So again, I wasn't quite sure how that had got down there. So I thought I'd have a little look. I didn't know very much about ships. So I had to do quite a considerable look at this. And the, the Comet was an armed cruiser it was actually quite substantially armed as it so happened in that it carried six 15 centimeter guns one seven and a half centimeter gun one three and a half centimeter gun and four two centimeter anti-aircraft guns as well as torpedoes a 15 ton fast boat intended to lay mines and it had a seaplane on board okay so that's quite a considerable sized mm. cruiser this one was also set up for ice breaking which will become relevant shortly. It was in Poland in the summer of 1940, and it ended up in the Pacific. And I thought, well, that's an interesting route. It's a fair old trek to go. So well, Poland to the Galapagos Islands from summer 1940 to summer 1941. Correct. Now, that's a fair old trek, and this ship actually sets, for me, quite a considerable set of statistics and figures for this. Now, it had to get out, and I was not aware that at the time, the Soviet Union was, I'm going to quote-unquote, trying to be neutral. However, the Germans were basically carrying out some commercial deals with the Soviet Union, and they came to an agreement that the Soviet Union would allow 26 German ships, including several armed cruisers, to actually travel around the Arctic side of Russia and enter the Pacific Ocean via the uh, Bering Strait. This came at a price which to Germany was the princely sum of 950,000 Reichsmarks in order to get their ships out from Poland and Germany and out into the Pacific. So in this case, the Comet left in the July of 1940, refueled in Bergen, and then it carried on through around the top of Russia, basically disguised as a Soviet icebreaker. It had to change its identity several times, and in the end it was actually escorted by an actual Soviet icebreaker to get it out, get it round, and get it through into the Bering Straits. 
it actually finally got down the Bering Straits into the Pacific Ocean in the September. So July to September to get round the top, basically, and down into the Pacific. Hence the icebreaking. Now, this was quite an achievement, in fairness. And the crew, of course, all this time are having to navigate some pretty horrendous things. So once into the Pacific, they actually then sailed down to Japan because they needed to refuel and they needed to work on their strategy of what they were actually going to do. They were looking to basically concentrate on shipping around New Zealand, particularly the Allied merchant ships. So they then took on, because of course Japan is not in the war at this time, they then disguised themselves as three, various different times, Japanese ships, including painting all the names onto the hulls and everything else to try and pass off what they certainly weren't. So they refueled in Japan and they carried on basically hunting around the Indian Ocean with absolutely no success for many months, which quite demoralised the crew. And they had to go through several resupplies, and that came from other German ships, and they kept on changing their identity throughout. Now, on the 14th of August, they met the Australind, which is the ship that Arthur Bird was on. Now, I'm not sure where the Australind had actually left from. That information I couldn't find. There's been many ships. There have been many ships named Australind, and I went through list after list. There was lost about the 1960s ships of that name, but I couldn't find very much about the journey itself. What I do know is it was carrying zinc, fruit, jam, and honey. So, interesting cargo, useful cargo, but not valuable war supplies, one could argue. Turning to Arthur's report on this, he is a man of fairly few words. So he says, My vessel was attacked by the German auxiliary cruiser Comet near the Galapagos Islands in the Pacific Ocean on the 14th of August 1941. Three of the crew were killed and the rest were taken prisoner. The raiders then took us to Germany direct and we arrived in Cookshaven on the 30th of November 1941. So it's still taking them up, what, four months to get from the Galapagos to Germany? Well, that's absolutely right, because whilst he says it took them directly to Germany, they did happen to do quite a lot of business on the way. The crew's obviously been very dejected by the fact it hasn't actually seen much of the war, and we're now well into 1941. By the time it would arrive in Germany, it would have actually have sunk seven ships. And during that time, as they would meet various ships, they would decide, depending on what the cargo was carrying, as to whether they would capture it as like a celebration of, look what we've got, including all the stock, whether they would take the stock on board or whether they would sink it. But in a lot of cases, that meant they also had to take on the crew members as prisoners of war. Now, when this ship set off, it actually had 270 of its own crew on, which is quite significant. Mm. Now, I haven't got a complete number for numbers of prisoners of war taken on, but it sunk a Dutch 7,500-ton freighter, of which it then took 2,000 tonnes of tin off of it. Which is a useful one. Which is a really useful one. It then sank another freighter. There was a few German casualties during these sort of skirmishes, but effectively they had three more successes. And then they moved on towards New Zealand. They captured a ship in New Zealand at the end of September. And then they met up with a, another German cruiser and transferred part of the prisoners and the load before they then got the order to return to Germany. They set out via Cape Horn at a slower speed and disguised themselves as a Portuguese freighter this time. This is where it was actually a little bit risky for Bird and the other people on the ship because they actually reached French port of Cherbourg on the 26th of November and they redisguised themselves as a different freighter and then they dropped into Le Havre and then sailed to Germany but they were spotted by British torpedo bombers who tried to sink her and managed to miss. So otherwise they would have been sunk in the channel by their own side, not knowing it was carrying an awful lot of prisoners before it eventually reached Cookshaven. Having been at sea, and this is what impressed me, for 516 days and covered 100,000 nautical miles. That is a fair old whack to that be at ski. what, a year and a half? 
Yeah, it's about a year and a half. Yeah. And ultimately, the ship came in, got refitted a bit, it got sent out, and it actually was sunk within a couple of months of it going out again. So it didn't do it anymore. But it, it took down seven merchant ships mm-hmm. during those course of those 516 days. But that's a long time to be at sea. And that's where we get Arthur Bird in Cookshaven in November of 1941. Yes, and he wasn't staying in Cookshaven for all that long because on exactly the same day, the 30th of November 1941, he was sent to Marlag and Milag North at Vestatimka. Which I think is specifically for... Merchant and Royal Navy prisoners of war. Absolutely. And of course, one we have come across before on several different escapes. We we have indeed. And is it not a camp fairly near the sea itself it is yes yeah in, in certain irony to that although you can understand why but it also meant that in the same way that the likes of Colditz and what have you you're essentially putting a whole bunch of very escape-minded prisoners of war in a prisoner of war camp together there's a certain degree to which you were putting a whole bunch of sailors in a prisoner of war camp very close to the sea even if they weren't particularly escape-minded they could at least smell the salt from the ocean and so the temptation must have been high, if nothing else. Yes. The call of the sea must have been... Excruciating. Exactly. So in the first week there, he says, it's a bit of a mixed crowd with us all belonging to the Merchant Navy, and they were taken to Wilhelmshaven for interrogation. So this presumably is a bit like Dulag Luft is for the captured RAF members. The naval prisoners of war were taken to Wilhelmshaven for interrogation. And there they were housed and interrogated in what he believed was a former naval engineering school, and they were kept there for a week. Now, I've heard descriptions of more incisive interrogations in my time. Right. He says, I was interrogated by a corvette capitan, who was quite an old gentleman, probably over 70. An old sea dog. His words, not ours for any listeners who are over the age of 70. We are just quoting the report, not passing any judgment on the content. And he was offered a cigarette and asked if I was glad to be alive and started the general conversation. With only a a little bit later did he start asking for any personal details or his life story. During this interrogation, he did not touch on naval matters at all beyond asking about the ship and the voyage, which sounds quite a lot like naval matters to me. Does to me too. And he did not appear to mind when I did not answer, so at least he wasn't taken in by the subtlety of the interrogation. He also discussed politics, including quote-unquote the Jewish question, but he never pressed the interrogation unless he had in mind to get a general idea of the personnel of the Merchant Navy. I could not see much point in the whole interrogation, although there may have been some propaganda purpose behind it. So, having been kept there a week, he says that his interrogation lasted about an hour and three quarters, so well worth the seven days that he spent there. He was only to make one escape attempt, so one and done. Well done, Bird. Well done, him. And he began his preparations for escape in November 1942. So this is a full year after arriving in Germany. And he managed to pull together actually quite an extensive escape kit, including maps, compasses, clothes, money and food. So he says that from a Norwegian prisoner of war, I got a copy of a map of northwest Germany, which of course is roughly where they're located. I also bought a compass from a British prisoner of war, ostensibly for a Norwegian who wanted to escape. I also managed to get the following clothes. A German peak cap from a prisoner of war working outside who had bought it for 100 cigarettes from the widow of a man who had just been killed on the Eastern Front. He also managed to get hold of a couple of jackets where he quite openly states that he stole it from a farmer with whom he had been working. 
A British shirt, but was of continental cut from a merchant navy parcel. A black rubber Macintosh, which had originally belonged to a Dutch engineer in the camp. Boots from a Red Cross parcel, which he actually states had brass eyelets, which were so unusual in Germany that he thought it might actually be dangerous to wear the boots, though he was never questioned throughout his entire time. But it would be quite distinctive, I would imagine. I, I mean, brass was quite in need material, really, mm. bearing mm. in mind it can be useful. So, I, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. And he also managed to get hold of a grey canvas haversack from another prisoner of war, 100 Reichsmarks, much of which he managed to get hold of from a French prisoner of war at the exchange rate of 2 marks to the Lagergeld. He also had a railway timetable stolen from a friend, possibly former friend by this point. I'm just thinking, if he, yeah, <laughs> which, yes. Which I did not need, so needlessly <laughs> thrown away his friendship there. <laughs> and... In my haversack, I carried about 20 Canadian Red Cross biscuits, several pounds of chocolate, a packet of raisins, a few other small articles of food, all in all enough to last me six days. Now, what is interesting about all of those foodstuffs, which we've seen before, is they're all highly concentrated energy sources. So they're low in terms of weight and size, but they pack a punch. They do. And interesting that he obviously has a plan that he's going to feed himself for six days. Mm -hmm. There's ambition here. There's a drive. He's set a time. Mm -hmm. He's going. I think it's much more possible if you know you're close to your destination, which, as a seaman heading towards a port, you can make a bit more of a plan in that sense. You know where you're going. You know your direction of travel. You know how far away it is. And you're kind of heading home, in a sense. You're heading towards your natural area. In the same way that we sometimes see airmen wanting to head to an aerodrome. Yes. It's perfectly natural for a seaman to head towards a port. Yes, I get that. So he escaped on the morning of the 16th of August, 1943. It's almost two years to the day since he was captured, uh, having been captured on the 14th of August, 1941. In fact, a little over two years to the day since he'd been captured. And he escaped while on his way to the farm where he was due to be working. He says the working party was dispersed amongst various farms, and while an armed guard did go with us, I had no difficulty in walking off in the direction of another farm to which a prisoner of war, whom I rather resembled, was also going. So having managed to make his breakaway, he went to a shed at the back of a neighbouring farm, where he had hidden all of his equipment, which he'd been taking out gradually and had been storing in there. He'd also dubbed his boots with Stockholm tar in case the Germans put the dogs after me, as is their standard practice in case of escape. Now I did look up Stockholm tar, because I hadn't really heard of it myself. Did you find anything on it? Yeah, it's a kind of resin. It's made of pine wood or something like that. It's okay. quite a dark tar. I assume it's sort of a fairly neutral smell, maybe. Mm. Or or else a very strong smell, but not smelling of humans. Hmm. Essentially. Interesting. Yeah. So he'd done that even though he didn't expect that his absence would be noticed till the evening. Of course, he says that he escapes during the morning. And he did also arrange for one of his co-workers, a Yugoslav, to cover for him should any questions be asked essentially telling him to say that he had no idea where he was gone and if he didn't do that some of his friends back in the camp would make sure that he remembered the details at a later date oh interesting yes okay yeah so when in doubt ensure compliance through menaces yeah (laughs) yes so after collecting his kit from the shed he started off in the direction of the local peat moor where he had worked on previously and so he knew the area well having arrived there he then changed into his civilian clothes which of course he collected from the shed from the army battle dress that he'd been wearing as a prisoner of war in the camp 
And then after changing, he made his way across the fields, passing north of Zevin, and then followed the railway line, and then later along a road to a point near Setenson. So he's covered about 20 kilometres at this point, having spent the night in the wood near the autobahn. He's covered a fair amount of distance in a day, and continuing on the next day, he continued on the road by daylight. So again, quite a risky move doing that, but he's clearly fairly confident. Heading in the northeasterly direction towards Harburg, Again, he managed to find a place to sleep for the night in the grounds of a large house a few miles just outside of Harburg. And on the 18th of August, only two days after his escape, he arrived at Harburg. And on the outskirts of town, he found a vacant lot of ground which afforded a good hiding place as it contained a number of trees and could be approached from several directions. And more crucially, it also gave him pretty easy access to the dock district in Harburg. So he's now reached a dockyard. Okay which, of course, is crucially important. And he's done that in two days, so he's still got four days' worth of food to last him. It's not unknown for escapers to get to a dock or a port and then spend longer trying to get on a ship than it's actually taken them to get there. We've seen that. You know, It's not straightforward that you're going to get on first time. No, not at all. So almost immediately upon arriving in Harburg in the dock area, he began searching for a ship. And he began by looking for ocean-going shipping, but he found many of the ships had been obscured from sight, and of course he didn't want to be nosing around too much, so he found it quite difficult to try and identify suitable shipping. And so he says that although the entrances to the docks are difficult to find, they are actually quite easy to access once you find them, as there does not appear to be any police control on them. Now that is unusual. That is very... We've not come across that before. No. The only times we've really come across that is when we find prisoners of war breaking into docks. Yes. I not going through paper checks but still entering illegally because there were paper checks i've not come across that before but that's quite useful intel and he actually gives a bit more detail stating that various docks can be entered without difficulty by the gate through which the railway lines pass so of course if you've got railways in and out no one's checking papers of a train correct yeah so that does help and again he states on this side the path runs from west to east across some allotments to a grassy embankment upon which it is possible to sit and watch what is going on in the dock so there are access points there are pathways in and out and even basically open land overlooking the dock so that you can actually sort of monitor movements keep an eye on this it, it seems quite a relatively accessible dock certainly compared to what we hear Danzig, Stettin, yeah. these places yeah the uh, big ones Sashnitz as well you know th- these these much larger ports seem to be really heavily secure this is less so yeah quite substantially less so and we have talked before about learning information from previous escapers while in the camp and there's a sort of flip side to this where he states I learned later from Swedish seamen that it was possible to travel by ferry into the Docklands without having to produce passes so by virtue of you taking the ferry you don't have to produce a pass again And that's particularly crucial because at that time, so August 1943, the south end of the road bridge across the river was controlled with three policemen on each side of the street. But he states this information about the docks in Harburg was not known in the camp when I left. Interesting. So it's really interesting to see, as I say, the flip side of that, whereby this is fresh intel that he is then feeding back into these escape reports, which then gets fed back into the camps. I imagine this made its way into Marlag and Milag Nord. Pretty quickly. Yeah, I would have thought so. Yes. So having spent five days in Harburg sleeping each night in this vacant lot and visiting the docks by day, he also visited a number of pubs. 
Good man. Yes. We have seen that on escapes before. Yes, indeed. Uh, I think this is integration with the locals. Assimilation. Yes, assimilation. Exactly. Yes. Assimilation with the locals. Crucially yes. important that you try and assimilate with the locals right down to getting pissed with them. And he even goes further and says that the Cap Horn near one Hafenstrasse was the best place for meeting foreign sailors. Interesting. So he's actually put a pub recommendation into his... Uh, yes, his travelogue, yes. Yes, excellent. Well um, done. <laughs> Now, I love this next detail because he also goes on to say, having toured the pubs of the Docklands <laughs> yes. at night... And recommended his favourite. Of course. Cap Horn, for anyone who's wondering. You know, when next time you're in Harburg, do look it up. During the day, I went shopping in the centre of Harburg and used to buy smoked fish, fruit and vegetables in the market in Sandstrasse and in a shop from Lunebergerstrasse. There is also a Woolworths store, still bearing the name of Woolworths, which was still painted in red on the same street as the shop. And in this store, I bought a glass dish in which to carry the salted sardines and salmon paste, which I bought in the fish shop. It's brilliant, the detail, but also very bold to go shopping for fish paste and this sort of stuff. That's a brave move. So he, he's living quite on the edge and, here. And a relatively normal life. Yeah. He, I mean, this sounds like someone who's quite relaxed in his surroundings. Yes, it I, does. I would not be no. in his situation. No. But he is. Yeah, absolutely. But but then I go back to you know what I said earlier about sailors feel comfortable in port and airmen feels comfortable in an aerodrome. You go back to your natural surroundings. Maybe he really does just feel comfortable in yeah. dockyards. You know, that this is just his natural habitat. It just happens to be in Germany. But in we, the war. <laughs> in the war. But we do also know that these dockyards, and he actually goes on to say in a minute in the report, we do know these dockyards often had a plethora of different nationalities working in them, quite often forced labour, admittedly, but it was not uncommon to find significant numbers of French, Dutch, Belgian, Polish, Czech, you name it, they were probably there, and and, as I say, doing forced labour. But that also meant that you had a pretty ready-made audience Mm. of potential helpers, particularly if you're trying to stow yourself away on a ship that was going to a neutral country. These were likely to be the people who not only knew what ships were in, but also who was there from them, where they were drinking. Apparently the Cap Horn was was a great place for meeting foreign (laughs) sailors. Absolutely. And as I say, he does go on to say that a number of camps were attached to works near the harbour in which there were several foreign prisoners of war employed there, particularly Frenchmen. He says there are several French camps which can be approached with relative safety, but he didn't make too much effort to speak to prisoners of war there as he had no idea whether they would be likely to help a British escaper. Is actually not the worst idea in the world because while we certainly do come across French prisoners of war working in Docklands and other areas that were willing to help British prisoners of war, there was still, even in 1943, a relative degree of resentment over the British destruction of the French fleet. Ah, oh, yes. In 1940. Yeah, that I can see that that could cause some yes. conflict. Yeah. Yes. Now, returning to the Caphorn pub... He says, on the second evening, they met several foreign sailors. I asked them for a match and saw that the box was of the kind sold only in Sweden. Indeed, he gives some additional information which helps to clarify how he knew that because he says that they're actually sold at a small additional charge for the benefit of a TB fund. Almost similar to you purchase a poppy, it goes to the British Legion. If you purchase this particular box of matches, the money goes towards a fund for TB. So I imagine it would be quite distinctive and therefore he knew that they had been to Sweden. Now, he says, I speak Swedish. In almost any other escape report, 
I would think that's odd. But for a merchant sailor, I'm actually not yeah. that surprised yeah, by yeah, it. Yeah, that yeah. doesn't come as a, an enormous shock because while in the Royal Navy, you're on duty and yep. therefore going wherever you're sent. I'm sure you saw many different countries in the Royal Navy, but of course, merchants were taken wherever the money took them. So the variety of different locations you would end up in is probably all the greater by definition. You're not there on military matters, you're there on business matters. And therefore, the idea that he has been to Sweden on several occasions and therefore speaks sufficient Swedish, that he can speak to foreign sailors in Swedish, doesn't actually hugely shock me here. So having asked them if they were Swedish, they replied no in a relatively unresponsive manner. And it turns out that they were actually Danes, who of course were occupied. So potentially friendly, but still an occupied country, and therefore we're not necessarily willing to be cooperative. I see. Which, again, we've come across this before, whereby those that have family back in their home country are not necessarily willing to run the risk of... Retributions towards their Their loved ones, exactly, yeah. yeah. So on his third night in Harburg, he was in the Caphorn again. Clearly... It's a really good establishment. And a well-established favourite by this point. When some Dutch seamen came in, now, he says that, that he had seen their ship come up the river on his first day in Harburg, but couldn't make out where it was they'd actually gone and docked. And while the Dutchmen were friendly, he sat drinking with them, posing as a stranded Norwegian seaman. One of them spoke quite a lot of English, and I had great difficulty in talking to him in broken English only. So he's trying to pass himself off as a Norwegian sailor, and therefore doesn't speak fluent English, when of course he's actually from Rutland. Yes. Quite the acting job he, he's got going on here. Uh, whilst also in the pub. Yes. Now, his plan was to try and get himself a job on their ship by posing as a Norwegian. And he said that, and in order to facilitate that, he said that he'd been in hospital and that his papers had been stolen. So they actually took him back to their ship to see the skipper. And on the way, he passed a Danish ship, which one of the men that he'd been speaking to had mentioned to him in the pub. The Dutchman he was with urged him to ask where the ship was going, but he managed to persuade the English-speaking Dutchman to ask for him, because again, if he's trying to pass himself off as a Norwegian, he can't exactly go up and ask in English, where is it you're going? Yeah. So this English-speaking Dutchman went to the forecastle and asked the Danish watchman in English where the ship was going, saying that he had a stranded Norwegian seaman with him. This is high risk. Very high (laughs) risk. High stakes. Lots of people getting involved here. Yeah. There's a lot of moving parts here that just requires one person to not be totally loyal to the Allied cause for this to all fall down like a house of cards. The Danish watchman said that the ship was bound for Sweden and invited him aboard, even putting the ladder out for him. So, not one to pass up a good opportunity, Bird said goodbye to the Dutchman and boarded the Danish vessel now. Having arrived there in the forecastle, he told the same story of being a stranded Norwegian in want of a job. The crew, among whom were the men that he'd previously met in the Cap Horn, told him that there was no job, but gave him a meal. He then hinted at stowing away, and they immediately deprecated the idea, particularly as some Frenchmen had previously been caught on the ship. They said it was quite hopeless to try and stow away as the Germans searched the ship so well. So as he was leaving the ship again, he asked the Danish night watchman if he thought it was impossible for him to stow away and he suggested he come back and speak to the captain the next day. So at 1000 hours the next morning, so we're talking about the 22nd of August 1943, he went back to see the captain and initially told the captain the same story about being a Norwegian trying to find a job. But the captain said he could not give him any work on the ship. Bird then again suggested trying to stow away, but the captain was not having it and showed Bird the piece of paper that he had to sign for the German certifying that was no one on board but the crew. 
Realising that he would not help him as a Norwegian, he then told him his true identity, and while the captain was surprised and pleased, he still advised Byrd to go back to his camp, saying that the war would be over in a couple of months. Now, in August 1943, this seems grossly ambitious by the yes. captain, perhaps even wishful thinking. Yes. He's raised the stakes higher by telling someone else that he's British, yep. and then he's been booted off the boat. So mm-hmm. they know there's a British person kicking around the kicking harbour, around possibly the pub, Caphorn. Yep, uh, I, I hear is one of his favourites. Oh, I hear it's pretty good. You can tell Bird's a bit nipped by this because he says, "All I got for this visit to the ship was a lot of disappointment and a stick of shaving soap." Well, it's not entirely lost then. No, no, no. Or was at it all. a hint that he needed to clean himself up a little bit? Well, perhaps. But then, as a seaman, you were allowed to have a beard. It's the only service I think you were allowed it in. Now, by this stage, Bird says that there had been a Swedish vessel in port for several days, but he had not seen any of the Swedes. So on the Tuesday night, so the 24th of August, he saw that another Swedish vessel had arrived in number one dock and closer to the gate than the other, which Mm -hmm. seems convenient. As he had not been in this dock before, he decided to try and make his way over there, and as his company badge was not dissimilar to the Swedish flag, he stuck the badge on his cap in case he met any Germans. He then went into number one dock and started to board the newly arrived Swedish vessel, but the German watchman stopped him and asked his business. He said that he was from the other Swedish ship that was in port and was going to visit the crew of this one. The German guard asked for my pass and I said that he did not have it with me and was sent scarpering. As a result, he now felt bound to go along the whole length of the quay to the other ship in case the watchman was observing him. So as he approached the first Swedish ship, a seaman came off and he states, I addressed him in Swedish, which he's already told us that he does speak, asking if he was from the ship and if he was a Nazi. He said he was not a Nazi. So having been told he was not a Nazi, he declared his true identity again and asked for help to get to Sweden. This seaman said that he thought he could stow him away in the ship and help him escape the German police search. He recommended that I go to the Cap Horn. He liked it too. Yes. (laughs) That's incredible. So he went there but found no Swedes. He then patrolled the dock road for about an hour and eventually three Swedes came along. He stopped them and put the same questions to them as the other seamen. They were from the same ship and they reacted splendidly. By taking him into the pub. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So having made contact with a couple of Swedish sailors, he says it was still daylight so we returned to town and sat drinking till dark, presumably at the cap horn. At the cap horn, yeah. Making plans to get him onto the ship. He dumped his Macintosh and other things on the dock road on the way back and before I entered the dock one of the men went on ahead to ascertain if it would be possible for me to climb on board from the quay without a rope and returned to report that this was possible. So then entering the dock they went ahead to the ship and aboard the gangway which was aft. So upon entering the dock two went ahead to the ship and boarded the ship from the gangway while one man stayed with me Once on the ship, one of them engaged the German watchman and the German customs man in conversation. The other then came forward and made a signal that everything was clear. The man who'd stayed with me went noisily along the quay to distract attention from me while I climbed on board. I'd taken off my boots and carried them slung round my neck. I then went between deck. The ship was empty and I walked where one of the men was waiting to take me to the crew's quarters, which were aft. I was therefore sheltered aft in the boiler room for the night. The ship left the following afternoon, so the 25th of August, and after the ship left, I was sheltered in one of the crew's cabins and was only stowed away in between decks just before the ship arrived in Kiel. So initially it sailed from Harburg to Kiel, so it's still in Germany. Mm-hmm. But they knew that a search party was going to come on board at Kiel, but it was quite a perfunctory search, so clearly not particularly in-depth. Once they were clear of Kiel, 
he again lived in one of the crew's cabins, remaining there until they reached Sweden on Saturday the 28th of August. The only eight of the crew had actually known that he'd been there, and the captain was not among those eight. Interesting. Indeed. One of the seamen lent him his pass, and he just walked out of the dock, spending the weekend with one of his helpers among the sailors, and on the Monday, 30th of August, reported then at the British legation in Stockholm. The police were then informed, but he did not immediately go to the police station, only going along on the next day. He was then in Stockholm until the 20th of February 1944, and was actually employed in the chancellery of the legation from the 4th of September 43 until February 44. So, having spent two days in Stockholm before reporting to the police, he then spent six months in Stockholm working for British officials in the legation. Now, I imagine a part of the reason for this was that he actually spoke Swedish pretty well, which we've already established. Yeah. And this certainly, no doubt, helped him a good deal, both in the escape with the Swedish seamen and then, of course, actually working in the legation. And he eventually arrived back in the UK on the 21st of February 1944, six months after reaching Stockholm, having arrived in Stockholm on the 28th of August 1943, 12 days after escaping. So his entire escape really took 12 days and then returned to the UK two and a half years after his initial capture. That's really good. Yeah, I think he. I think he ended up flying back to Lookers in Fife in Scotland. So, ah, as, as many of them did actually. Yeah, from, from Stockholm. Yeah. Well, sadly, we don't know if he ever made it back to the Cap Horn again. Alas. Because I don't know what he did for the rest of the war. Again, sadly, I think because of his role as merchant seaman, there isn't really any record going forward from there. I found accounts of other people who had been on the Australind and had been imprisoned, and they they had passing mention to the bird. Um, But sadly, again, in this instance no further information so again if anybody out there does have any information on him or indeed has visited the cap horn Mm. um, please get in touch Uh, it does appear to still be open and it's obviously very good for it to be there 80 years after he spent quite a bit of time on the run in the pub well thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed that if you'd like to subscribe we're on apple itunes google podcast or indeed any of your favorite podcast platforms or you can find us on twitter and facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.